Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. There's no doubt that meditation has caught on in our modern culture, celebrities, from Oprah Winfrey to business leaders such as Robert Murdoch are all extolling the benefits of meditation. I might add there even Sam Harris, who is a famous atheist, um, the author of the book Letter to a Christian Nation, has come out with a number of books on the power of meditation. A look at Amazon shows, and this is unofficial, uh, that there are about 98,000 books on meditation which is a very big number, even on Amazon. And on this show, for example, I've had a number of guests with different takes on meditation, and that would be from the three-minute meditation technique of Dina Proctor to Dean Sluter's natural meditation to Joseph Emmett's Buddha's Book of Meditation. So everybody, it seems, is promoting the benefits of meditation as if it is the cure-all for all the world's problems, all of our social ills, and for our mental well-being. But is meditation really a panacea for all that ails us? Does it make us better people? Will it create world peace? Is it the only way to really change ourselves? And put differently, is there such a thing as a Buddha pill? Now that is both the topic of today's show and also the, the title of a new book co-written by this week's guest, Dr. Miguel Farias and Catherine Wickholm. Now, Dr. Farias has studied and lectured experimental psychology at Oxford University. He currently leads the Brain, Belief, and Behavior Group at Covington University, and I think we're going to see here that uh, he has a unique perspective and really a refreshing perspective on meditation. Miguel, welcome to the show. Hello, Phil. Very nice to be here with you. Yeah, the, the, uh, as I was saying before the show, it's nice to have somebody who takes a, I, I would call this a uh, objective, scientific perspective towards meditation, because a lot of times I think we tend to skip to the spiritual, emotional mm. benefits without taking a step back and asking ourselves, well, what, what is really the evidence supporting this and, and, and why does it work? But let's start with um, sort of some background here. What led you to take this particular perspective on meditation, the, the perspective of the scientist? I, I was very interested in meditation during my undergraduate years. This was back in Lisbon. And this was the, the late 90s when consciousness studies were booming back then. And that led me to, to, to read and meet some people like Stan Groff and Amit Goswami. And by then I was reading a lot on meditation. Eventually I came to Oxford to do a, a doctorate in experimental psychology, but specifically looking at whether alternative, which were then alternative spiritual practices, including meditation, but also things like Reiki, whether they really help to change people, like many, many of those who practice these techniques thought they would. So I, I've had this interest for a while, and back in 2009-10, so five, six years ago, I and some colleagues started working with um, an organization based in Oxford which organizes yoga and meditation classes across most British prisons. And 
that's really what led us to this study, a randomized control trial on yoga and meditation in prisons, the effects it had on prisoners. That was the, the seed to write this book. Yeah, I thought that that was a very um, unique and, how can I put this, um, original perspective on meditation. Because I think a lot of us sit back and say, well, uh, are people naturally evil? Mm. Uh, when, when, you, when you put people in prison, it's like, in many ways, we're giving up on them. And yep. and so the question would be, well, and I've always had a problem with that because uh, I think it conflicts with a lot of the religious uh, culture, uh, such as the notion of forgiveness. Yes. But, but I think that when you compare, you know, it's sort of like you have the clash of two two belief systems here. You have the, you know, the um, sort of the inf- coercion of prison. Yes. Uh, the the uh, punishment of prison. Yeah. And then you have this notion of meditation, which has this air of of openness, of 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 uniting with the divine. And that's that seems so, so um, conflicting. So I, th- yeah. I think that I think I think that was um, a really good sort of contrast and a really good approach. And I want to get into that a little bit. Yeah. But but first of all. Let's talk about meditation for a little bit. Um, what, how would you describe meditation without using the word meditation? If we're talking simply about meditation, well, there's two ways of looking at it. One is simply a technique, a technique of focusing, right. as simple as that. Another way is looking at it as part of a larger discipline, a discipline of self-exploration and self-transformation, which is what the context in which meditation techniques were developed within spiritual traditions. So again, again, it's, it's a method of focusing, of going within, but with a very specific purpose and, I mean, built within a, a very structured system. Yeah, the... the you know, for me, and one thing that uh, appealed to me about your book is that I have read, as I said, I've read a lot of books on meditation, and mm-hmm. I have, I even have the, there's a software program that someone recommended to me, I think it's called Headspace, an apt. Oh yes, very popular. An apt, and I tried that, I ride the train every day, so it's sort of a good, a good uh, opportunity to experiment yeah. with this. And I am not a big advocate. I am not like, I don't think that it is some kind of miracle drug, so to speak. And so yeah. there was something, and I, and frankly, I haven't figured out if that's me or whether, um, you know, I haven't done it right or, yeah. or whether it's just, it's just not for everybody. And so I thought that the way you approach this uh, in in the Buddha pill was was really sort of um, informative. Now, as we go down this path here, uh, we we sort of see that there's this thing called meditation, and you sort of make a distinction between um, does meditation is meditation the best way to change you, or is it is it really at the at the core, sort of a, a connection to spirituality, and I, I, I found that that was very interesting. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about why you you seem to think that meditation is at least the way I read it. Meditation is sort of a door to the spiritual, if nothing else. How how did you come to that conclusion? Can can I just go um, a step back and go back to to what you're mentioning that you have tried Headspace and other meditation techniques and you're wondering whether this is the right thing for you or not. I I think that is a very healthy thought. It's not. It's not a thing for, for everyone. And my experience of meeting quite a lot of religious monks, whether Hindu, Buddhist, or within the the Christian and Roman Catholic tradition, is is that there's there's a variety of contemplative techniques. Many have simply to do with chanting, which again 
can be regarded as a form of of meditation. But it's there's different ways of going about it. There's different ways of going within, and um, and it's not. It's certainly not for everyone, uh, and particularly the mindfulness, which is is being promoted as a sort of universal way of healing almost anything. It's certainly not true. It does work for some. It doesn't work for other people. But now moving moving straight to your question about the possibility of meditation as a self-transformative tool. Now, I I think we have a very biased understanding of this, which is mostly a an adapted version of Eastern techniques which have been coming throughout the 20th century into the US and, and Europe. But it's particularly with transcendental meditation that you start getting a, a desire to unite science with meditation. But again, at, at, at the very root, it's this idea that this, a simple technique of focusing can have a deep effect on your consciousness. So with the case of Transcendental Meditation, it's supposed to connect you to the universal self, the universal consciousness. And once you get this connection, you will see yourself and the world in a very different way. Now, there is, there is something about this in, in the spiritual traditions coming from the East, but it's it's been profoundly biased, if, even within, within the Hindu tradition, of which meditation and different kinds of meditation are a part of self-transformation. This is embedded within a system of, of learning, of studying, for instance, studying the scriptures, and of ethical guidance and, and actions. So we, without without these other aspects, meditation doesn't necessarily lead you to to any place. And I mean, for instance, within a particular system of Hinduism, Advaita Vedanta, some schools of Advaita Vedanta would say that meditation is simply part of the, um, of illusion. So it's not taking you anywhere other than your usual self. Yeah, yeah. I'm not so. Sure. Yeah, I I think that. It, it's extremely um, helpful the way you approach this because we are taught or conditioned is maybe a better word mm. that there is a pill for everything and there there was a yeah. there was an article that I used in my own book The Collapse of Materialism by um, Sharon Begley of Newsweek and it was something like you know a pill for all purposes or yeah. or uh you know everybody wants there to be the youth pill the de-stress yes. pill the grow you know the growth pill everybody wants to take a pill and then go on with their daily lives as if it's as simple as I, that I, I i think we do we do have in all of us the desire for for that pill yeah yeah, and and, yeah. and we have we have to fight it. We really, really have to right, fight right, it. Right, right, right. We have to right exactly. We have to, uh, we have uh, to fight it. And you know, I have to think that I mean certain thir- certain things, uh, like when you get older, and everybody wants to stop the aging process. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the unspoken wish of everybody. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so you know, if somebody ever came out with a pill that actually did that, it would hopefully be a best. I'm sure it would be a bestseller. But but except for <laughs> except for things that you can't, you know, that seem to be inevitable. And footnote here: I don't think aging is in a, is inevitable. So I'm basically crazy on that point. But 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 <laughs> but leaving that aside, um, you know, it's sort of. It, the, the fact of the matter is, one message from your book is that if you want to have a connection with divine, if you want to be more spiritual, if you want to be a better person to change, uh, meditating for five minutes a day or five hours a day isn't isn't the only thing you need to do. It's not it's not the it's not going to cure it all. It's not going to make it happen, right? It's a, it's part of a process. Yep. yep. Yes, and and again, my first question would be, 
what is your purpose in yeah. meditating? Yeah. That would be my first question. If you, you you come and tell me, oh yes, I've been doing this this meditation, but whenever I come off it, I I just start having all the same problems coming back to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have to go back and do more meditation. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let you talk. I mean, I mean, you give an example of of in your book, and I forget which. Um, which person it was or whether it was your section of the book about about you know you can meditate 22 hours a day but then you've got two hours to deal with the world um that that to me is really really important one of the uh the, the lessons i learned here that i um i listened to some of these teaching company uh yeah. courses mm. periodically and uh one of them that i remembered was it was either i think it was on buddhism and the guy and the lecturer was talking about how he went to India and sort of shadowed um, the, I guess the the, the beggars. Uh, and the whole idea was was that you know you spend all day sort of meditating, and then of course you've got to eat. But yeah. and so the way it's done is you get your bowl and then you beg. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, that cannot possibly be right, because if that was correct, then we would all be begging from each other. Uh, <laughs> so there's got to be something wrong with that. And um, so this is this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. Miguel Tharias, the author of the new book, The Buddha Pill. And I'd like to move here a little bit to the scientific side of this, which is, you know, a big question a lot of folks have, which is, can the benefits of meditation be measured? Right. That's that's a very good question. So, scientists who are measuring the effects of meditation would say, um, of course, of course they can. Other people who are coming from the spiritual traditions, there's a um, a famous uh, Catholic monk, Lawrence Freeman, who is directing the meditation on on the Christian side, he would say, no, you can measure a few things, but you can't really measure the depth of of a person's joy or love or peacefulness or patience or kindness. Right. Uh, however, that's that's indeed what scientists are trying to do. Now, I, I think I think there is a big confusion uh, about this. One thing is, what what exactly are we dealing with? So, we have these techniques which have been used in tra- the traditions, and people like Kabat-Zinn has adapted uh, a mindfulness technique, which is indeed part of the Buddhist tradition, and has adapted it into a medical context. Now, I... I don't think we can ridicule the the desire to use whatever technique. It can be anything. I mean, some people may use music, others dancing, others just talking, like in most kinds of therapy. We can can rightly say that anything which alleviates the suffering, I mean, should should be good in itself. So from, from the moment that you start using meditation techniques to help it, people deal with, with stress or, or even meditation. And that seems to work. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it per se. No. The problem is that this has been taken in a different way by, by, by the media, but also by scientists. So that, as you were saying earlier, meditation is presented as a panacea, as a cure for all. And this is taking it way beyond the scientific evidence. And what, when we now look at the accumulation of studies, what it shows is, yes, it can, it can help moderately with things like anxiety and depression in some specific contexts. However, when you compare it to other techniques or even antidepressants, it it doesn't do anything more than other psychotherapy techniques, for instance. Now, there is something else which which hasn't been coming up in the news and which is something which we've we've talked about in our book. 
which is the problem that sometimes the technique of meditation, not only it doesn't work for a number of people, it isn't helpful for other people. So there is a possibility of adverse effects with meditation. And, and basically, I mean, we can, we can expand on this and say that there is, there is a shadow side, there is a dark side to meditation. From the moment that you treat it as a technique, then you can develop programs for the military, for instance, as it has been done, and it's being used now with military, not just as a method of stress relief, but preparing people, soldiers, who are about to go into combat zones. Hmm. And, I, I mean, again, this was done, this has been done hmm. since ever, but specifically also during the Second World War with Japanese soldiers. From the moment that we transform something which which was part of a meaning system into a technique, you can use it for anything. Yes, you can use it to help people with chronic pain, but you can also use it to train people to become better killers. Yeah. Well that that's the you know, the dark side of meditation that you discuss in your book I thought was very interesting. I had when when you were going through that and um I had some reactions to it, and just to sort of summarize the way mm-hmm. I viewed that, I mean, it's sort of like, uh, to me, it was very similar to getting carried away with drug use. Yes. Where where, where the, the use of the drug becomes an end in itself, and and you sort of lose your own identity. Um, the, the one thing that, I mean, it's really amazing, Miguel, that so many of these old sort of slogans, traditions, the way they get translated into the modern world. I mean, for example, the Buddhist notion of of um, losing the attachment to the ego, yeah, or losing the attachment to the material world. And you know, if you lose your attachment to yourself or your ego, then the question is, what are you? I mean, yes. and that's that was something you talked to us. So why why don't you? I mean, t- talk a little bit about what you learned from this dark side of meditation, and and what kind of uh, characteristics um, or what kind of features of meditation might cause someone to go to the dark side here. Well. I I have to say, I mean, very, very honestly, that I wasn't expecting, I was expecting to come up with this dark side. I was expecting to come across limitations. I I was aware of some of them, even from our research within prisons. But I, I sort of stumbled upon it. First, I had a student who told me about how she had suffered a serious psychotic episode after meditation retreats, and then as I looked into it, there's there's a literature, a hidden literature, on on how meditation can bring about epileptic episodes, to mania, psychotic episodes, depression, and to anxiety. And this this happens with practically any kind of meditation technique. Let me just add that since our book came out hardly a week goes by in which Catherine or I get one more email from someone who was doing either transcendental meditation or mindfulness or Qigong and had a completely unexpected difficult experience from it. Yeah. And and something which we're trying to, to push now is to raise the awareness amongst meditation teachers, including mindfulness practitioners, to be aware that people can react in very different ways to this. And don't don't be patronizing. Don't just tell people, oh, it's just because you're you were very stressed before you started this. Just keep on doing it. That's that's really the wrong way to go about it. Just to acknowledge that there is the possibility of unpredictable things happening. It's it's a way to go. Yeah. Now, yeah go ahead. Let me just add something more to this. The fact that we hadn't, as scientists, looked deeper into this, I, I think only shows 
our very superficial understanding of the human mind. We have been following a biomedical model of the mind which talks about the mind as, as a kind of almost like a muscle, right? right. So you, you do meditation to make your mind fitter like you do jogging to make your body fitter. I'm, I'm very, very concerned that we're, we're using meditation to sort of reinforce this very shallow understanding of the mind. So, in a way, we're completely twisting the, a much deeper understanding of the mind which is present in the spiritual traditions which developed meditation. Well, well how, do you think, how do you think meditation should be used? I mean, what, what, uh, if we're misusing, if many people are misusing it, uh, let, let's say because of the popularization of it, then how, how should it be used? Right. So again, if we're using it as a as a technique for relaxation right. or within a a clinical context to help with depression, right. The first thing is it can be used like also like there are other five hundred techniques available. But we we have we need to have an understanding that the interaction between an individual's unique makeup in terms of personal life experience, personality, biology, and how these interact with meditation, it creates something unique. So we have to acknowledge this uniqueness and be ready to understand that people will react differently to this. If there is no acknowledgement of the individual variations with meditation and the potential adverse effects, then I, I don't think teachers should be using it. Yeah, well, I yeah, think it yeah. is partly responsible. Yeah, well, I think there's you know there might be two problems here. One of them is what your book is about, which is that um, the the notion that meditation is the cure all for yeah. for everything. You're right. 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 So that would be the second aspect of it. Right. I I think that we need to think harder about it, and and people like yourself can have a wonderful role in actually trying to save meditation from its scientification, from making it, I mean, reducing it, basically, to a, a very partial and non-holistic means. Yeah. Well, I, I recall that, and I, you know, I'm trying to remember where I read this, but Joseph Campbell um, said something like, to him, uh, we meditate all the time, meditation is just uh, being alone with your thoughts. And right. I, I always, I have, I always took that kind of approach to it, um, where a lot of a lot of it is to me, sort of trying to set the conditions to be to quiet the mind or to be alone right. with your yes. thoughts. Yeah, I, I think meditation can play an important role with that, and and there is there is a deep spiritual hunger in our society. But this very easily can be misdirected for the search for magical pills, magical right. bullets. Now, on the other hand, Phil, I, I think that we're still suffering from a 19th century way of looking at thought of, of, of the reason, the exercise of reason itself, because it was used in such a reductionist way. I... I think we're not using it enough and in the right way. I think there are ways in which, I mean, in combination with meditation or other techniques, we should use our reason as as a spiritual tool in itself. I think we can use our reason to to go to places which are which are quite deep and spiritual. There is um, a wonderful historian of ideas, Theodor Zeldin who recently, well, I mean, the last few months was in the, the British media because in a, in a literary book festival, he was saying that he was criticizing mindfulness as a sort of mind-numbing or mindless exercise. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I've, I've heard Zeldin speaking, and, um, and what he's saying is that we have, we have to be thoughtful. We can exercise our reason in, in a deep way 
way. So he proposes thought exercises in which people talk to each other about things like how can we increase our compassion, but what are also the limits of our compassion? And how can we, I mean, how can we try to make the world a better place? Now he's saying, he's, he's getting people to talk in pairs. But he says to people, now, talk about your experience, but move beyond it. Think about how people in China or in India or in Pakistan would approach this problem. So he's actually asking people to use their reason as an empathic exercise. Yeah. And I, I think this is genuinely a, a potentially a spiritual, a true spiritual exercise, which can indeed lead people to be more compassionate and empathic to others. So you don't have just to sit down, try to empty your mind and think about sending compassionate thoughts to, towards other people. There are other ways, there are other intelligent ways of engaging with it. Well, that that is such a good point to make. Uh, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. Miguel Farias. The author, the co-author of the new book, The Buddha Pill, and we're talking about what real, what medita- what meditation really is, and what its most promising uses are in our modern world. Now, I I completely agree with with, uh, and I'm not familiar with with uh, Mr. Zeldin, and maybe I, I need to be, but I I have a presentation I give sometime. It's called The Logical Path to Spirituality. Mm. And I, I'm of the, I'm an advocate that I think reason and logic can lead you to spirituality. Uh, the here, here's one, one problem I have with with meditation, which is to me it's a it's a solo venture. I, I don't have. I think that meditation, uh, in the ideal form, is a connection with the divine. I think it is a connection, and by divine I mean a underlying essence, oneness, being, this kind of thing. Uh, and I do think that that is healthy. But then you, but then when you interact with other people, uh, you talk to them, you try to convince them of something, um, you're stuck in traffic, uh, or or you have to give a presentation. You you now have to communicate with this with this with these other people, interact with yeah. the world, and you sort of unless you bring something. Uh, with you that you benefited from meditation. In other words, unless it's changing your interactions with people, yeah. then then it really hasn't done much. Um, it 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 maybe has made you a better person, what a more open-minded person, a calmer person, which is all good. Nothing wrong with that. But it's that interaction that really is the test, and that's why when you you know you gave an example of of. Uh, of Hitler, Hitler, you know, suppose yes. Hitler, Hitler meditated. Why don't you? I mean, that was that was a really good example. You know, well, if, if it's if meditation is the panacea, well, maybe if Hitler would have meditated, but you don't necessarily agree with that because of the um, the culture and the the process, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, you you can't decontextualize an individual. Yes. L- listen, I, I I started out actually very much espousing such a, an individualist what we can call a, a romantic individualistic idea right. that um, you can if, if if you take it seriously you can just use something like a meditation technique and if you persist it will it will eventually change you deeply and the way you behave towards other people I I think we can't we can't be naive. There's lots of other factors which contribute towards uh, aggression, world poverty, and and crime and and war. I there is something about that that ideal, that romantic individualistic ideal, which has been practiced in, throughout the ages by by hermits who have gone into the wilderness, in, into caves, to deal, to fight their, their inner selves, their inner demons, try to, to vanquish themselves. But if you read, if you read through the literature of, of these wonderful, um, courageous people, you realize how extraordinarily difficult it is, and how even if you 
put all your energy into it, that does not guarantee the end result. Because we are complex beings. And it's not because we now have computers and and we travel very quickly from one side to the other side of the world that we are more sophisticated people than we were 2,000 years ago. We are not. Actually, the amount of information we have makes it more difficult to actually distinguish and discern one thing from the other. So, in that respect, we're much more likely to get confused probably than 2,000 years ago. And there's a lot of confusion which which we really, really have to, to illuminate when we're using meditation. And just just think of how we keep moving from the idea of meditation as a spiritual tool and the idea of meditation as a clinical tool. And this this confusion is, I mean, permeates the whole dialogue on mindfulness, for instance. And it's it's going to. So there are there are Buddhists who love the science studies, who think that this is going to change the world. And there are others who are horrified by this and think that we're going to lose this. We, we are going to make meditation another more commodity, just one more thing that you chew and, and yeah. use and misuse. Yeah, well, yeah. No, yeah. Let, let me just finish by pointing out that the way the scientists and the science of meditation is moving, there's, again, quite a lot of underlying ideas which are not being expressed and one of these ideas is that meditation can indeed change how you behave towards other people and there are studies using mindfulness loving kindness and compassion meditation trying to show that you become more empathic towards others your negative thoughts are reduced and even your actions are more generous and compassionate towards others now if if I were doing this kind of research, I could tell you there's this study and this study that shows that indeed you are much more generous towards other people after you've done compassion or mindfulness meditation. I, I could tell this story. However, when you look, when you agglomerate these studies and you look at all of them together and you 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 do you do what we call a meta-analysis, so you look at all these studies together. What you see is that the the ability of meditation to change how you behave towards others is actually rather weak, and it's not better than lots of other techniques. Yeah, yeah that that would be that would be called a discouraging finding for those who are advocates of of meditation. And it reminds me, I mean, you you addressed it in uh, you addressed it in your book. The uh, was it? I think the Dalai Lama. Uh, said that uh, yes. if all if all what the, if kids were uh, trained to meditate before eight years old, we would end wars within a generation or something like that. Um, and you you had some you had some uh, observations on that point, which um, which I think it might be good for you to talk about because that, that's a famous one. And I guess Oprah uh, spread it around, and it, it, it became a, yeah. a very popular notion. Yeah, I, I have to say, in favor or in defense of the Dalai Lama, I was never able to track the original quote. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah, that's a it it has a life of its own, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if he said it, yeah. and we also quote something else which goes the complete opposite way, hmm. in, in which the Dalai Lama in a, in a conference of clinical psychologists were using mindfulness. He said that actually when he needs to sort out a problem, what he needs is a good night's sleep and to use his intelligence rather <laughs> yeah. than to meditate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I hate to say this, but uh, I think sleep is a form of meditation. And I, I mean, <laughs> yes. I, you know, if, if, I, if I had to describe, and this is, this is uh, beyond, this is even worse than a beginner level, so I'm not, so... I would describe meditation as uh, as sort of that state where you're still conscious before you fall asleep. I mean, yes. I, I'm like, you know, you're still conscious of being there, and you're not quite, you know, in a, in, a, in the subconscious. And and so I, I want to say a couple of things here because 
It's related to Ken Wilber's distinction between states and stages of consciousness. I yes. Guess, I guess I guess that's one point I would make, is that if you if you hypothesize that uh, that the Vedanta is correct, that the self is part of Brahman or the self is part of an underlying unity, call it God, call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, then by meditating, if, you're, if, if through that we are connecting to oneness, connecting to the divine, then it's hard to say there's anything bad about that. Yeah, I mean, people could overdo it. Uh, they could spend too much time sitting around doing nothing. They Ooh. could be, they become beggars. They could exasperate, uh, you know, anger or something. But overall, that seems to be sort of a positive thing. Uh, but then you've got to carry that feeling into the world. And this is where I get to this. You know, Ken Wilber says a state, states of consciousness are easily changed when you exercise, uh, when you do drugs, when you have sex, and when yep. you meditate, you know, you, you reach this state. Well, it, it, a state of consciousness doesn't change your stage, doesn't change your yes. evolution. Yeah. And it's really the evolution. It's really that permanent change that we're trying to get to. At least that's my opinion. And so I don't yeah. know wh wh where you come down on that, but I wanted to give that sort of uh, observation because that's to me, helps helps me understand. It. I mean, I am not, even though I haven't said a lot of positive things about meditation, I, I do think overall it's a good thing. I just don't think it's only for it's it's only um, practiced by sitting alone in a in listening to chants and with your legs crossed. I mean, I I do think there's other ways to get there. So, no, you're absolutely right, and it's it's just one thing within a package of, of various things towards self transformation. But l let me let me reinforce a positive thing about meditation. Meditation, not as a numbing process, a just a way of getting into a nice, quiet place, but actually meditation as a tool for unrest, this quiet, the kind of disquiet you need to get to a real place, to a real place of, of being, to a place where you start to learn how to unlearn. Because if you're looking for a real transformation, that's the way you have to to go through you have to go through that sense of of unquietness there has to be a shake up of who you think you are yes yes and and too and too many times we become wrapped into uh the sort of the material self or the ego and yeah. let me let me give you i mean a real life and i i think i think Buddhism is generally correct. I mean, I think that even though it is it's sort of like the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, where everyone has their own interpretation yes. of it, but the a lot of the principles of Buddhism, um, I think, are correct. But, you know, in my daily life, I practice law, okay, so it's a very stressful job. Oh, yes. And, and during any, any particular time, my computer might not be working, uh, the client doesn't return a phone call when I need an answer or something. Uh, the other side is berating me because uh, of some position I took, and my secretary is out to lunch, and the p most important person that I need to help with is on a three-week vacation. So, so all these things could be going on at once. And so you think, well, uh, sh should I, you know, scream, yell? I mean, and to me, this is where, frankly, things like meditation are helpful. Because yeah. you just sit down, and it, there's a calming thing. It's just like, this is, to me, it's like rushing to the bigger picture. Yes. Like, get, get, get me to that big picture as soon as possible, because otherwise I'm going to go crazy. Um, so, so there is, so, uh, to me, Miguel, this is where meditation, I want to bring this, I want to talk about prisons in a second, but I, I want to bring this to this point, what I, which I think you're making, which is that, Meditation is actually a positive thing because it connects us to something greater than ourselves, um, and it reminds us of of something hovering over us or 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 uh, stewing beneath us that's bigger than our little bodies, our little egos. Yeah. But we still have to act in the world. We still have to go out and act in the world. Yeah. So, so, so to me, that is a that is a, a big lesson here. Yep. 
I'm with you. So now, one of the things that again, and I sort of uh, we sort of detoured when you mentioned it in the beginning of the show about about prisons um, that you've done a lot of work, and this really was one of your inspirations. Uh, and I wanted to lay some foundation before we got to this because I thought this is a really amazing thing. The sort of the connection you made between the the prisoner cell and uh, the ashram. Uh, yes, I guess that's what it's called, something like that. Uh, the, you know, a place, a, a quiet place of meditation. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you've learned from uh, applying uh, or seeing the application of meditation in the prison environment. And a lot of people might not have realized that this is actually occurring right now and that there are studies on this. So why don't you yes. talk a little bit about your work in prisons? So, <laughs> what we did was to, I mean, to get a large sample of prisoners, divide them randomly into a, a yoga meditation group that would do these exercises for 10 weeks, and we had the, the control group. So, we had positive results, as you'd expect, in terms of mental health, stress, and we also had some limitations, particularly in, in the way that it didn't lead to a decrease in aggression, like in the way that we expected. But let, let me give you a, a wider context to I, why I think that it is important that I mean, techniques like yoga and meditation can be important within a, a prison context. Because they're, they're relatively easy and expensive tools which require no literacy for instance there is I mean there's quite a significant proportion of the prison population who cannot read simply it's it's giving them also a chance to find a place of quietness within them, within themselves which is very very difficult in a in a stressful environment when when our when our results were out and the media started writing about it, I mean, particularly the tabloids were asking, well, should we really be pampering prisoners, horrible people who have done all sorts of things with these techniques? And, I mean, making the connection with, with the dark side, I have a serious problem with the way... <coughs> Some press and many people use prisoners as as a sort of projection of their dark side. So we all have we all have aggressive criminal instincts within us. Yes. By by thinking that oh those are the bad people that are locked away, we're sort of getting rid of all our potential for for criminality and and all the bad things that we end up doing on a daily basis. I mean all, all the little evils we engage with and there's not enough we can do to fight this image as any serious honest prison governor would tell you most of the people who end up in prison are just it's 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 just the odds are against them they are they are people who've had traumatic horrible backgrounds often i mean they were children of people who are criminals themselves and who are abused suffered all sorts of things while they were growing up so the chances that they end up in prison are just tremendous yes so so anything anything that we can do to help prisoners get a second chance i mean a chance to know themselves in a different way so to to be to be honest i don't know I can't tell you how effective yoga and meditation are, but just the idea that, at least for some of the prisoners, this will allow them to get to know themselves in a way which they haven't had before, a, a place in which there is at least some relaxation, if not some peace. Yeah, and I think that that is a that's a, a I think that's a message that. Um, needs to be advertised and needs to be promoted, and it's it's funny because you know in the U.S. 
there are, of course, um, the moralists and the liberals, and even even the conservative folks would understand that if it helps uh, decrease the prison population, if it helps decrease crime, if it helps if it helps improve the economy, then it's a good thing. Um, but to me, the, it's a powerful point. And it's something that I learned at a young age, and I, I believe it that crime and um, and edu- and uh, edu- and uh, intelligence and social standing—it's it's so cultural, it's so cultural oriented that we forget that we are all part of a, of, a, of what would be called a milieu or a context, as you say. And and with that, if we understand that, yeah, people who are in prison, most of them have done evil things and they should be punished. But to pretend as if that they are somehow unique creatures um, that are are that are that are eternally damned to yeah. to um, to be evil uh, is really not the best perspective. It's not correct. And let's face it, what you're saying, I think, is. Let's experiment with this. <laughs> yes. Let's let's try it out because it can't hurt. It yeah. it can hurt, right? Yes. I I mean, having said this, Phil, it doesn't mean that meditation or yoga in itself will will yeah. do the trick. Yeah. It's usually a combination of factors, and and here I would really reinforce the importance of of having one person. I mean. If, a therapist, a, a forensic clinical psychologist. I think most of the magic of personal change that happens, it's just through interaction with another person. It's often this person that carries the faith and hope in you when you've given up on yourself, whether whether it is with a prisoner or even when it's someone who genuinely aspires to self-transformation. Yeah outside of prison. Yeah. Well, I think it's also part of the evolution, development uh, towards, uh, I'll use the word holistic, um, approach. Uh, you know, we see it in medicine. Yes. I mean, we see it in medicine. We see signs of it in science. Uh, religion, in many ways, is based upon holism. Uh, the And and by that, I simply mean looking at the whole the whole person in the context of of a of a global family or global network, yeah. um, as opposed to an isolated piece of the of the uh, or a cog in the machine, which is which is the way we we typically do it. Now, going going to the theme of your book, and it's amazing how fast time flies. Um, <laughs> the title of your book is. The Buddha pill can meditation change you. Well, at the end of the day, um, is in your opinion, is there a Buddha pill? Is is meditation a a Buddha pill? Uh, it will have to be an ambiguous response, in the sense that. Yes, it has been turned into a pill by some clinical psychologists. So, in a very narrow way, as a as a technique that can help with various things, some individual which will help some individuals. But at the end of the day, Phil, no, I I don't think meditation is a Buddha pill. It certainly is not something which works for everyone, and it's not something which just by itself will lead to deep transformation. I mean, unless very exceptionally, sporadically. Yeah, it it seems like the, it comes down to, and and you make this point, it comes down to, are we talking here about temporary change or permanent change? Yeah. And the, you know, the notion that you, you meditate and you feel good for the next hour or two, and then yeah. you get back into the stressful mindset, and then you go back and you meditate, you go back and forth. I mean, I don't, that is so similar to taking a pill, but but we don't, but you shouldn't have to be taking pills to survive, particularly pills that um, are altering your emotional state. 
you know it, yeah. it should be there there should be another way to do it so so what i mean you you've worked in therapy as well right i mean you're yes. a therapist i mean so so what what do you think in terms of like a if you're going to give uh sort of somebody like a recipe um people that are undergoing you know whether it's a change of jobs a loss of a mate uh depression maybe maybe the parents have died or something i mean what 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 recipe it, it, would you would you provide or what other um things would you suggest these people do other than meditate or in addition to meditation i uh, th- this is so difficult because it will it will vary on the circumstances yeah. Yeah. if if we had unlimited resources i think that a really proper therapeutical experience with with a good therapist is a, an extraordinary potentially self-transforming experience because the therapist is there to look at you as a whole it's not just there to, to fix a particular problem it's, it's not just giving you a a, a tool, a cognitive tool or a mindfulness tool for you to, to to help alleviate this little problem. I mean, if if we look at the person truly holistically, perhaps something which I mean, even a depression can be a, a bridge towards personal exploration and personal change. Yeah. Well, perhaps I, it's happening for a very good reason. Yeah, I thought that your quote there from. Uh, Carl Jung, Jung uh, at the end. Um, yes. It says here, um, how can I be substantial without casting a shadow? I must have a dark side too if I'm to be whole and by becoming conscious of my shadow, I, I remember once more that I'm human. I'm a human being like any yeah. other. That's a quote from Carl Jung basically saying that not everybody is pure spiritually perfect. Yeah. And, yeah. and and that that's part of that's you know it's part of being human. You know in our in our world of self-help books and I would shudder to think how many there are, you know. So many people <laughs> yes. and and I I tell people that I should be the most well-balanced person in the world because for the show I read so many self-help <laughs> books. I mean, I should be the the ideal but I'm not. Uh so so I'm not so I I apparently need more self-help, but the you know so many people try the self help route because it's cheaper and yes. it's sort of like a pill kind of thing but it's also cheaper which I already mentioned but um, it's they like to try it themselves and so in terms of leaving the listener with some takeaways here uh, Miguel the I would recommend this book. It's called The Buddha Pill because it gives a nice objective view of meditation, folks, and not it's not it's not a how can I put this? Um you haven't dismissed meditation as being worthless, but what I think what you're doing is putting it in context. I think yeah. that that's what this book does and that's why I think this is a valuable contribution to the field. But but what else would you I mean you and you mentioned therapy which not everyone's going to do, let's face it. Yeah. Uh what what in terms of other books or or other suggestions you would have for the listeners um Miguel, what what other things would you suggest? What we're moving now is is actually towards this idea of wholeness. Yes where I tell people do not be afraid of, of feeling restless, of feeling disquiet I mean, do use it to go deeper within yourself, if that's if you want to find out who you really are don't be afraid of those difficult places, just try to use all your resources, your intuitive your rational resources use meditation but open yourself especially open yourself to other people yes yeah i think i think that's i think that's good and i want to echo something here in closing that you said earlier um miguel about the use of reason and logic i i think that things like meditation and spirituality are great but they have to be used in conjunction with reason and i think um 
I mean, one of my favorite books is called is Descartes' Meditations. Uh-huh. I think yes. that's a book I would recommend to anybody. It happens to be very. Yeah. It happens to be very short too. This little book changed the world. Yeah, it basically changed the world. And this this this, this it's a philosophy book, and it's Descartes being in his bedroom. I think he was probably in his in his pajamas, yes. just sitting down writing. And it's it's a profound book uh, because it it it. it it's an honest book, and it shows that when you do quiet the mind and you really think about things without all the preconceptions, about all the conditioning, you can have breakthroughs. And, right. Um, On the other hand, the self-help books put you in a sort of state of mind in which you really believe in this. You really believe that this will take care of everything. Right. Which is exactly the opposite of what the cards meditations are doing. Yeah, yeah. So there. So at, at the at the end of the day, I think that it you have to work the mind. You have to think for yourself. Um, I I think that meditation um, sort of does connect us with the divine. I think it does connect us with oneness. But I also think it's only part of the puzzle. So uh, and and only by combining i think sort of the uh, the emotion the spiritual and the and the rational uh do we really make uh, progress uh this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science and Re- religion miguel thank you so much thank uh, you so much for Phil. being with us it went fast but i i want to again emphasize uh that this is a really um important contribution to this field it's called the buddha pill and uh, the guest today was Dr. Miguel Farias. It's also the, his co-author, by the way, is Catherine Wickholm. And uh, tr- try to pick it up. This is again. This is Philip Camella. Conversations beyond science, religion, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism. Visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.